the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Daniel Ryan Day. He was actually scheduled to be my guest yesterday. I was a bit under the weather, so we're going to talk with him today. His book is titled Intentional Christian, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. Well, that's a pretty good thing to consider. Anyway, he'll join us later in this hour. We're also going to talk a little bit about the budget battle and deal that was struck, and we'll see what happens over the next several days, Uh, but all of that coming up over the course of today's program. Well, negotiators apparently have reached a deal to fund the government through September. Congressional aides say uh, staving off the threat of a government shutdown through most of uh, President Trump's first year in office is a good thing. The bill includes funding for the military by $15 billion, with $1.5 billion of that going to border security. None of the border security money goes to funding the construction of a physical wall, however, or to hiring ICE agents. The deal also uh, doesn't block funding for Planned Parenthood or sanctuary cities, both of which President Trump threatened to defund. The deal also includes $2 billion for National Institutes of Health funding and year-round Pell grants, as opposed to grants only awarded twice per year. The measure also includes $68 million to reimburse local law enforcement for protection of the president in New York City and Florida. Florida, which members of New York and Florida requested, and House and Senate return uh, on Monday, actually, uh, and uh, set a midweek vote. I believe they're looking at Thursday of this week. We're going to take a closer look at some of the elements of the uh, of the funding bill, what's in it and what's not. But I think one of the major points is that when you fail to take each one of these spending bills uh, individually, it's very difficult to make the kinds of uh, changes to raise the issues that the administration wanted to raise in this uh, first time around. But because this is a holdover from a holdover from a holdover, uh, essentially what you do is you add a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but you don't uh, you don't have the freedom, you don't have the latitude, the time for debate, uh, consideration and all of that um, to make the kinds of changes I think many of the American people were hoping for. It's not the deliberative process that it ought to be. We're talking about funding the government. Now, Fortunately or unfortunately, this is only through September, and they still have to negotiate the 2018 um, uh, fiscal year. So this is only going to stand for a couple of, well, a few months. Um, And then they're going to have to do the whole thing over again, um, presumably the right way, which hasn't been carried out for uh, more than a decade. Anyway, we'll uh, take a look at some of the elements of it. One thing, sort of a superficial thing to consider, the new federal spending bill proposed in the Republican-controlled Congress to fund the government through the end of September, uh, is now posted on the House Rules Committee website, if you're interested, rules.house.gov, and it goes on from there. It's 1,665 pages long. It includes an average of approximately 210 words per page. Now, that makes this bill approximately 350,000 words long, or about twice as long as the stimulus law, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, Uh, that President Barack Obama signed less than a month after his inauguration in 2009. The government funding was not an issue at that time. This 
um, uh, stimulus bill was a priority. As uh, reported in 2009, the House Appropriations Committee and the then Democrat-controlled Congress, they released the president's stimulus bill in two PDFs less than 24 hours before the House was going to vote on it. Less than 24 hours. One PDF was 575 pages long. Uh, The other was 496 pages long, making the entire stimulus when published in that form 1,071 pages. They have 24 hours to read it, comprehend it, and then vote on it. In the format that uh, government printing office eventually used to publish the final text of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the law comprised a single PDF that was 407 pages long, leaving out many of the details they didn't have time to read, study, comprehend, or question. The pages in that PDF included an average of approximately 430 words each, making Obama's stimulus law approximately 175,000 words long. On the House floor this past Friday, House Majority Whip Steny Hoyer said the, that House uh, Speaker Paul Ryan uh, had told him that members would have 72 hours to read this new spending bill and that the vote would take place on Thursday. So they have 72 hours. Hoyer said on Friday, I talked to the speaker, Mr. Ryan, and to the majority leader standing right there on the floor just hours ago yesterday. It's my understanding that the speaker's intention is that we have a bill filed Monday night. Uh, So the speak in the speaker's words, we have 72 hours to review that bill and then pass it on Thursday. Now, with the stimulus package, they had 24 hours. It was one thousand seven hundred rather one thousand seventy one words. They have 72 hours in this case, one thousand six hundred and sixty seven pages. Um, I don't know about you. You can read a book of that length. You can follow a storyline, but I'm not sure the entire budget for a uh, bustling republic like ours, um, that may not be the best approach. To read uh, all 1,665 pages of the bill over the next three full days, a member of Congress or a citizen would need to read 555 pages per day. Now, again, that's not uh, too steep, but You're talking about an active Congress. They're doing lots of other things. And it's not just a matter of reading it and checking off a box. One would like to think they not only read it, but made some effort to comprehend it, to understand its impact on the American people, the economy, uh, that there are questions that uh, might arise, could be answered. There could be some debate over certain elements of it. None of that's going to happen. They got 72 hours and they're going to vote on this thing. That has become the common practice Uh, which seems uh, to many of us a bit irresponsible. doesn't matter who's in the White House, who's in Congress. um, Insufficient time to review this kind of serious uh, legislation seems like a bad idea. Anyway, Thursday, they're going to take a vote. We'll keep following the story. Well, the massive spending bill does fail to meet conservative priorities. Justin Bogey and Rachel Gresler, writing for the Daily Signal, point out that Congressional negotiators, rather, released the text of this massive omnibus appropriations bill that would fund the government uh, at least through September the 30th. The bill is expected to pass later this week with bipartisan support and avoid a government shutdown. Lots of back and forth debating, wrangling uh, over the last several days. And while the bill does make progress on issues like additional defense funding, not to the level the president had asked for, and increasing border security that does not include the wall, it woefully fails the test of fiscal responsibility and doesn't advance important conservative policies, if that's your goal. Now, the bill would provide base discretionary funding of $1.7, I should say $0.07 trillion for the remainder of fiscal year 2017. That's the level set by the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2015. 
This is a $30 billion higher than the caps in the original Budget Control Act of 2011. However, when you add in the additional spending for overseas contingency operations, disaster and emergency spending, other funds not subject to the budget caps, that uh, total rises by an additional $93 billion. So some of the uh, positive things, the um, defense and border security are addressed in this bill to a higher level, but not to the level that the administration thought necessary. Uh, the omnibus bill would provide an additional $15 billion above the 2015 Bipartisan Budget Act level for defense uh, and an additional $1.5 billion for border security. Unfortunately, the additional $15 billion in defense spending is only half of what the president requested earlier this year and is inadequate to meet global threats facing the country. So um, the Air Force, for example, will probably still have to cannibalize their old uh, flying machines to keep the new ones or the newer ones uh, in the air. The additional $1.5 billion for border security is important in the battle to curb illegal immigration, but none of these funds can be used for the construction of a border wall or barrier or whatever you want to call it, one of the president's top priorities. So a victory in some small way, a, a uh, failure to reach victory in some other ways. We'll continue to wind our way through some of the positive and then some of the more challenging aspects of this budget deal. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Daniel Ray Day. His book, Intentional Christian, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Toyota of Vancouver and Zero Res. We're talking a bit about the massive spending bill that failed to meet conservative priorities and the president's own stated priorities and members of Congress who were sent to, to Washington in larger numbers with the expectation those priorities would be met. Now, some say it might be unrealistic given the fact that this was the continuing resolution from the continuing resolution, and this is... Uh, nothing more than a, um, a, a an omnibus bill that will have to be uh, reworked um, when it expires in September. But nonetheless, it is disappointing for people who expected with the numbers in both the House, the Senate, and with Republicans holding the White House, some of these priorities would be met. Uh, first of all, the defense and border security. I mentioned that the omnibus bill would provide about $15 billion above the 2015 bipartisan budget level, but that is only about half of what was actually requested uh, what the president had requested earlier this year and is not adequate to meet the global threats facing the country. And there are far too many of them. Also, the additional $1.5 billion for border security is important in the battle to curb illegal immigration. However, none of these funds can be used for construction of a border or uh, a uh, what's the other way of, of putting it, uh, some kind of barrier. Uh, one of the president's top priorities. Unfortunately, none of the increases in spending proposed by this bill would be offset Uh, In other words, this is deficit spending. Earlier this year, the president released a skinny budget, which proposed $18 billion in 2017 cuts, yet none of these cuts made it into the latest budget deal. Not very promising. Uh, Thinking more about, you know, your kids and grandkids, what they will end up owing uh, because we have not been as careful at this time. Well, the increases to defense and border security are designated as overseas contingency operations funds. And they're therefore not subject to spending controls. And while additional funding for the military and border security are a step in the right direction, these increases should be fully offset by restrictions to domestic programs. Now, with the nation's debt $20 trillion and rising, Congress has to show some fiscal restraint and look to cut spending. But that is the painful part that they are very reluctant to do. Rather than using budget gimmicks to continue to spend without restraint, they need to take uh, responsibility 
um, and man up, if you will. On top of the additional overseas contingency operations funds, the bill would provide $8.1 billion in disaster and emergency funds for 2017, more spending that's not subject to budget caps. And among these additional funds are $2 billion to states to aid recovery from flooding and severe weather, almost half a billion dollars for wildfire abatement in the western United States, and similar funds are provided every year, making it hard to distinguish these as truly emergency. So they're sort of discretionary in uh, in the way they are um, are used and addressed. Funding for these uh, expenses that are recurring should be provided within the the uh, base budget, and additional spending above the cap should be reversed for uh, reserved rather for uh, wide scale natural disasters and unpredictable events. But the way it's structured give them. Uh, much more latitude. Uh, also, they've expanded an existing bailout of the private union. This bill proves that uh, it's nearly impossible to shut the bailout door once it has been open, and that's so often the case in Washington. Once something has begun, whether or not it's uh, uh, it's effective, whether or not it's still needed, it's very difficult to stop what has been started in Washington. The bailout is for the United Mine Workers of America, which represents only about 10 percent of all coal production in the U.S. today. In 92, the Coal Industry Retiree Health Benefit Act uh, opened the door to what was supposed to be a limited non-taxpayer-financed uh, bailout of health care benefits for one particular mine workers union. But when the pool of non-taxpayer funds wasn't enough, Congress opened the spigot to federal taxpayer dollars, about $1.2 billion since 2008. Now it wants to further widen the bailout to cover workers that the original bailout specifically said could not be covered. Now, it's absolutely true that coal miners perform hard labor in dangerous conditions, and neither coal miners nor any other uh, worker should have uh, promises of health care and retirement benefits taken out uh, out from under them. Um, uh, but the federal government isn't the guarantor of private unions and private companies' promises. If it were, every union and company would make uh, unsustainable promises and simply expect the government to step in with future bailouts. I mean, you'd find the governor of Oregon in Washington begging for cash to cover the uh, overextension of PERS. Well, the health care bailout will uh, maintain coal miners' uh, catalytic, uh, catalytic, I guess it's called, health care benefit at a taxpayer finance cost of over $100,000 per retiree over the next 10 years. That's $75,000 more than the coal miners would otherwise be able to access through federal programs like Medicaid and Obamacare. And speaking of health care bailouts, the bill provides another one to Puerto Rico. Uh, as the poster child for government mismanagement, political corruption, and all wrong economic policies, uh, Puerto Rico faces an economic and fiscal crisis, and now the federal government and federal taxpayers, that's you and me, are set to pay the price. It does not uh, require that things be handled differently, however. Uh, the bill provides Puerto Rico with $296 million in additional Medicaid funds to cover the first six months of 2018. But money is uh, fungible, so what Puerto Rico doesn't spend on Medicaid, it can spend on anything else that it wants, uh, with no accountability, by the way. And as the United Mines uh, Mine Workers of America bailout demonstrates, there's no such thing as a temporary or limited bailout. It will be very difficult to end the bailout once it has begun. This will likely just become a new baseline for further spending increases. That's what we've seen over time. Uh, also, Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories already receive a disproportionate share of all federal welfare spending, despite the fact that their citizens do not pay federal taxes. Now, this bailout sends a dangerous message to states and local governments that if their budgets come up short, they too could receive backdoor Medicare and other welfare bailouts that will uh, free up resources to maintain otherwise unsustainable spending levels. Hence my example of Oregon 
uh, earlier. Now, overall, this bill fails to advance most of uh, the key conservative policies and makes numerous concessions that um, the expectation was would no longer have to be made given the makeup of uh, of Congress. Now, the Washington Times calls this uh, this whole thing a win for the Democrats in the spending bill in their showdown with Donald Trump. Now, one would like to think that in the budgeting process, the winners would be the taxpayers and the citizens of the United States. But we do know that this is really a face off between two prominent political parties. They win, they lose. The American people stuck somewhere in the middle. Sometimes we win, more often we lose. Mr. Trump emerged with more money for the Pentagon, but the funds will be uh, tacked into uh, uh, onto the deficit rather rather than offset the deep domestic cuts the president had originally sought. Um, he has a majority in the House and the Senate couldn't pull it off. He also failed to get any money for his uh, border wall. Was forced to agree to make unauthorized Obamacare payments. Democrats, meanwhile, struggled to think of a single major fight they lost and couldn't come up with any significant defeat in the bill. Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer of New York said, overwhelmingly, we were very pleased with the outcome. Issue after issue, I would not say there's a major loss in here. Well, the bill partially bails out Puerto Rico's Medicaid program I mentioned earlier. It boosts spending for the National Endowment for the Arts. It increases the National Institutes of Health budget by $2 billion, restores year-round access to Pell Grants for college students with financial needs, keeps the Environmental Protection Agency budget intact, fending off Mr. Trump's efforts to trim the agency's operation. So if you're going to uh, reduce spending... Um, this doesn't present much of a hopeful scenario in which that is likely to happen at some point in the next budget. Congress has to pass the bill before the end of Friday, which is uh, when the funding for a one-week stopgap bill expires. The president and his defenders were left to claim victory on the um, Homeland Security funding, defense spending, about half of what the president wanted, uh, and the back and forth continues. But, of course, these are bills that have been proposed and apparently agreed upon, but until the votes have been cast and counted, you just have to speculate what the outcome ultimately will be, and we certainly will follow the story here. Up next, we're going to talk with uh, Daniel Ryan Day. He is the author of Intentional Christian, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. He's an author, a speaker, a blogger, a fellow believer. He spent quite a few years of his own life figuring out what God was calling him to do. We're going to find out what he learned from his quest as well as what the scriptures have to say. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, some of us find it very difficult to uh, um, to deal with trying to figure out what God's call on our life might be. We're stressed out about it. Sometimes we assume that what we're called to do is interchanged with a career path which should lead us to the dream job, you know, the thing that we are best suited at and most want to do. But what happens when that doesn't happen? Is it time to panic? Well, not according to my next guest, Daniel Ryan Day. In his book, Intentional Christian, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do, um, he gives us some advice and some uh, scriptural uh, roadmaps on how to follow uh, what God is saying. He's had his own uh, dilemma. He suggests, rather, that uh, Christians should understand the distinction between specific callings and common callings in life, and he takes readers on a process of self-discovery, urging them to redefine success instead of viewing calling as career pursuit, 
They should see it instead as a clear direction for living a God-directed life through Christ. And he provides uh, some practical examples of how to live intentional Christian life using both personal and scriptural examples. He joins us today to talk about his book, Intentional, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. Well, Daniel Ryan Day is an author, a speaker, a blogger. He uh, holds a master's degree from Fuller Theological Seminary. He spent many years trying to figure out God's call on his life. His search for answers led him to discover that God reveals every Christian's broader calling within the pages of Scripture. And he attempts to live out intentional Christianity in North Carolina, where he lives with his wife and children. Joins us today to talk about his book, which I think you'll find very helpful, Intentional Christian, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. This is a very interesting title. How how common do you think it is that followers of Christ struggle with knowing what to do, expecting um, to hear something specific that will give them direction, and and being frustrated because they're not altogether sure? Yeah, I think it's, it's very common. Um, it started because of my own struggle to find that exact, uh, or being stuck in that same dilemma that you're describing. Um, I wanted to know what God wanted me to do with my life. I also wanted to find uh, a dream job, which our culture promises us that we should be able to find. And at some point along the way, I kind of mixed the two together and thought that God's call would probably be to a dream job, and uh, or at least something that would be fulfilling and purposeful. And, and uh, it was through that journey of not being able to figure that out and not hearing from God and wondering, God, why would you hide something this important from me that I ended up um, kind of going through this journey, ended up, of course, being able to write the book about it. And um, But the reason that I was so excited to write it is because I knew I wasn't the only one. I looked around. Um, in fact, my church at one point, we had a calling class, and I was 17 years old at the time, and I thought maybe I was one of the only people struggling with it. But at the time, the whole class filled up with people in their the teens, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and even higher that were looking for what God wanted them to do. Mm. I think what you've just described um, leads people to several conclusions. Number one, I don't I don't have a, any clarity on my calling because I don't have anything to offer, and clearly God cannot use me for the kingdom. Number mm-hmm. two, uh, um, God isn't speaking to me. He's, he's using others, uh, but he doesn't have a calling for me, or I just don't have the capacity to hear. What are some of the wrong conclusions we draw when we find ourselves um, uncertain about what God's saying about my calling? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the, the first conclusions that we um, come to is that God's calling is going to be about a job, um, first of all. And we actually see that in Christian culture a lot. If you just search for it on Google, what is God's calling for my life? You're going to end up on a lot of websites, whether it's a, a publisher promising you that you can answer God's call to write your book, or whether it's um, a, a ministry saying, here are the steps discovering how your gifts and abilities lead you to the perfect job that is God's call in your life. Um, that's probably the biggest one that I see is people are just assuming that their calling is going to be directly related to what they do for a living. And that's probably the most dangerous one. Um, but I think also people begin to wonder if God cares about them, um, and they start to wonder, mm. Man, is something wrong with me where God does, you know, I hear that God's a good father, but is that really true? Because he's hiding something so important from me as his will for my life, um, which is really where I ended up at one point where I'm like, come on, Lord, you know, 
Jeremiah 29, is there. It says that, I'm spo- that you're supposed to have a, a plan and a future for my life, and I know that, but you haven't told me what your plan is. Did you really love and care about me? Uh, because you're not telling me something so important as what you want me to do with my life. That seems basic and very fundamental. You rightly make a distinction between common and specific callings. Let's begin there by explaining the difference between the two. Sure, absolutely. So um, when I talk about specific calling, I think that's the the example of calling that most of us think about when we um, think about what it means to be called by God, what it means for God to direct our steps. Um, and what that is, is when we look through the Bible, we see examples of people like Moses or Noah or Paul, um, people that heard from God and God told them to do something specific. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, we're going to find that there's a bunch of passages of Scripture that actually use a phrase that really jumped out to me because I was searching for God's will for my life. And there's a bunch of passages that actually begin with the phrase, this is the will of God for you. Um, but what we find in those passages, like in First Thessalonians 5, for example, it says that God's will for you and for me is to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, um, to give thanks in all circumstances. Well, those are things that apply to every Christian, regardless of what culture you're from, what job you have. It doesn't matter what job you have. You can pray without ceasing. You can give thanks in all circumstances. And so what we find is a lot of the calling that we see in Scripture um, is actually not a specific call for a specific person to do something like build an ark, but instead a lot of the calling that we see in Scripture is calling us to live in a a certain way. Um, In fact, one of the questions that I was kind of struggling with as I began to think through uh, some of this content was, what if I've been looking so intently for God's call that I've missed His will? For my life? Mm, What if mm. I've been looking so specifically for that call to a perfect job or um, to figuring out what I'm supposed to do for a living that I've actually missed as well? Because when I read 1 Thessalonians, when I read 1 Peter, when I read Malachi um, or Micah 6 8, which says that God's will for our lives is basically to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God, um, it doesn't matter what I do for a living, I can do those in any job. Uh, and so I think that's that's the distinction there, is you have specific callings, which there are specific people that are called to do specific things. But those in Scripture actually end up kind of being the exception, not the rule. The rule is that God calls us to live a certain way. Hey, you make the point, in fact, one of your chapters is titled, God is Already Directing You. And perhaps in our, our search for uh, the burning bush, we're missing... Uh, the fullness of what God's Word says about His desire for us and how we live out our Christian life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In fact, (laughs) I kind of um, came to that idea because one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs 16.9, which says, A man plans his way, but it's the Lord who directs his steps. And so I was thinking about that one, and I was like, okay, if this is true, the Lord is directing my steps, then what does that look like? And so as I began to look back over my life, I found that a lot of things had come together that I could have never orchestrated. Uh, For example, let's take, um, I I married my high school sweetheart, which is awesome. Her name's Rebecca. We actually celebrate uh, 10 10 years of marriage in two weeks. Um, And to meet her, her family had to move from Florida. They ended up only moving to Florida for a couple years, and then they moved back. 
During that time, we happened to go to the same church. Her parents joined my parents' Sunday school class. She became friends with my sister, and that's how we met. And so the way the Lord brought us together was through orchestrating a series of events that allowed us to meet um, and then worked out those steps so that we could end up getting married. And so as I look back over my life, even some of the jobs I've had, like how did I end up at this job or that job? I find that, oh, it's because I met this person at this other situation. It was stuff that I could have never planned. And, and so Proverbs tells us that we can plan our way, and that's fine, and we should plan our way. We should be diligent to be a good steward of our time and our resources and try to figure out what God wants us to do. But ultimately, the pressure is not on us. The pressure is on God who directs our steps. And he has already figured out what we're doing. He already knows what his plan is for our lives. And so it was that foundation that led me to begin to find some of those common callings. That's, that's when I ended up in First Thessalonians and saw these verses that said, this is God's will for me. Um, but it was obviously surprising because it had nothing to do with the job, which is what I assumed it would be. And so that's what I mean by God is already directing your steps. God is already doing something. And each listener out there, he is directing their steps. He loves them. He cares about them. He wants what's best for them. And he is directing them, even sometimes when we don't feel like he is. Mm -hmm. We're talking with Daniel Ryan Day. He's an author, speaker, blogger. His book is titled Intentional Christian, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing a conversation with Daniel Ryan Day. He's the author of Intentional Christian, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. Now, the title of your book uses the phrase Intentional Christian. Explain what that, that uh, phrase means. Of intentional Christian is that I realized... Um, on kind of through this journey that there was a difference between people that really understood what it means to live out our faith and those who didn't. Um, And unfortunately for me, I kind of fell into the category of people that weren't living out their faith, even though I grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school. Um, And so, uh, and what that was, was there was, there was this one group and they are the ones that make a difference in the world. They're the ones that, um, have read these common callings in Scripture and are living them out. And it's the people that follow through on their good intentions. See, I always see people that need help and want to help them. Or I read a common calling in Scripture, such as rejoice always or pray without ceasing. And I always want to do those things, but I tend to not do them for some reason. And um, so basically what happened was I was sitting down one night, I am reading a children's book to my child, who uh, was my son, who was three years old at the time, and it was a book called The Rhythm of My Day, and it, uh, it goes, pearls of sunshine on my bed, dance about my waking head, rhythm, the rhythm, the rhythm of my day. My tummy gets hungry for something to eat, here comes my yum-yum, a delightful treat, rhythm, the rhythm, the rhythm of my day. And I'm reading this book, and I'm like, man, I have a rhythm to my life. I have things that I do every day without thinking about it, and yet... Within that rhythm, there's no space to serve others. There's no space to live out these callings like seeking justice or loving mercy. Instead, my rhythm is all about me. And, and so I decided I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to be someone that follows through on those good intentions, the desire to do something. And so um, that's where the, the term comes from, is that our goal as Christians 
um, should be to follow through on those good intentions. When we see someone who needs help, we should help them, not just want to help them. When we when we read a passage like rejoicing always, well, all of us are going to go through rough stuff in our lives. So how can we live that out in our lives? How can we rejoice always? But even within saying all that, one of the things that I have come to realize and that the Lord has really penetrated on my heart is that if you really begin to look at all the common callings in Scripture, specifically one that's found in First Peter, you're going to find out that one of God's callings for our life is that we're supposed to be holy like He is holy. Mm-hmm. That one really stopped me in my tracks because I'm a list person and I want to you know, get things done, check them off my list. I want to be that intentional Christian. But when I read that, I realized, wait a second, this is something I can't do. I can't be holy as God is holy. No matter how hard I try, I cannot be holy. So how does this work? Um, and then I was reading later in Scripture, <laughs> and uh, I realized how many times that God says something about, I open their eyes to see or their ears to hear. And in Proverbs, it actually tells us that eyes to see and ears to hear are a gift from God. And so I'm grabbing all these pieces, and I'm starting to put it together, and I'm realizing, wait a second, to be an intentional Christian has nothing to do with me creating a list of all the common callings. It doesn't have to do with me trying to figure out how to make a difference in the world, find people that I need to help and try to help them. What, what it really comes down to is walking in relationship with God. That's what all this comes it, it comes down to the Holy Spirit filling us and living through us. And and that was that moment. So so when people read that, Intentional Christian, I actually have a chapter in the book that is my biggest concern with this book. And the biggest concern with this book is that people will read it, and they'll see all these common callings, and they'll begin to list them out. And all of a sudden, they're going to realize, wait a second, this is a pretty heavy burden. How am I supposed to rejoice always? How am I supposed to pray without ceasing? How am I supposed to be joyful when life is all but joyful? Um, But Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. So if it starts to feel heavy, wait a second, something isn't right. God walks with us. That's that is the beauty of this story, is that it's not man planning his way and man directing his steps. It goes back to that Proverbs passage that we talked about. God directs his steps. Yeah, this is a relationship. It's not a one-man show. When do you think most yeah. Christians begin to question what their calling is? It might surprise listeners that it's sooner than we may imagine. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, for, I've met quite a few 14-year-olds. Um, as I've been uh, at a few schools, um, had the opportunity to, to speak at a, a couple of schools. I also work with um, a bunch of teenagers at our family entertainment center, which is just a place with go-karts and laser tag and stuff like that, um, and uh, which is my day job. And uh, working there, I talk to kids 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, that are completely paralyzed by the weight of options out there, whether it's the decision of what college to go to or already struggling with, well, I know what college I'm going to go to, but I have no idea what I'm going to major in because they feel this pressure, like choosing the major is choosing the whole direction of their life for the rest of their life. Um, and so it starts, it starts way and way younger, especially if parents put more and more pressure on their kids to do certain jobs or to, to have that path laid out before them. So when a young person begins, and it's not exclusively young people, it just tends to begin at the earlier years, when an individual begins to um, to ponder what their purpose in life is, what's the best place for them to start? Uh, being mentored, looking into God's Word, what's the best place to start? Yeah, I think both of those are really key. Um, I think it begins with prayer um, as well, and asking the Lord, okay, Lord, um, direct my steps. 
What do you have for me? And then absolutely mentorship is huge. In fact, I dedicate the book to my friend and mentor, Robert, who um, taught me that uh, the Christian life um, is not about having all the answers, but is about walking faithfully with God. And uh, so mentorship is key. Trusting parents is key. But, you know, if you're already outside of the house and you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, maybe you don't have uh, those parents around you or maybe you don't have a mentor. Um, You know, some people, they don't have any responsibilities in their life, so they don't have to worry about, like, jumping from job to job or anything like that. So they can do that. They can test the waters in a few areas. Other people getting into books and reading and seeing, okay, what are things that I enjoy? What what can I do? Um, But primarily... It comes back to that relationship with God, and, and I think this is pretty key. Um, one of the things I realized in this journey uh, came from reading a book by Phil Vischer called Me, Myself, and Bob, and it's the story of Veggie Tales. And Phil Vischer points out in the book, what did Noah do with the first 500 years of his life? And I remember pausing and saying, well, nobody knows that. But actually, Genesis 6-9 tells us exactly what Noah did with the first 500 years of his life, which was Noah was a righteous man who walked faithfully with God. When we see the story of Noah, we think God specifically called Noah to build this ark to save the world. That's what Noah's calling was. And although that's true in a way, that actually is the small part of Noah's life. The bigger story of Noah's life is that he was a righteous man who walked with God. And, and so... As these teenagers are beginning to struggle with these questions, or as people that are older, young adults, older adults, who are struggling with, what am I supposed to do with my life? It really all comes back to what we just talked about a few minutes ago, that relationship of walking faithfully with God. And so that is what we should be focused on the most. And again, what we're going to find is that without the help of the Holy Spirit, we can't do that. You also write about uh, Moses and Abraham, uh, Jonah, Uh, and uh, others in the scriptures. And I I so appreciate that emphasis on being faithful with what God is calling me to do in this moment, in the next hour, in these days, uh, even uh, without a specific calling, uh, when we are faithful in those little things, if you will, then God may call us to do uh, much more. Well, it really is a, a wonderful book that reminds us to put things into perspective and that our walk with Christ is just a life of faithfulness, walking with him as he orders our steps. The book is titled Intentional Christian, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. The book is um, published by Discovery House. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, well, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Five minutes after five o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. We were talking in the first hour about the budget deal, and I wanted to comment on a couple of elements of it that are absent. One of them is the funding for a border wall. The White House says that, uh, in fact, they vowed that funding for a border wall is coming, just not now. There's a lot of back and forth over the the cost of the border wall, who's going to pay for it and when. But Congress plans to pass a final spending bill to keep the government running beyond next week, but without funding a border wall. Well, the White House says that it will demand money for the president's signature campaign issue in next year's budget, which, by the way, is just what? uh, Ten months down the road. The president is committed to having a physical border wall that is not to be. Uh, doubted. That's a 
quote from the White House media affairs director speaking to the Daily Signal in an interview. She added that the funding didn't have to be at this particular point in time when we need a continuing resolution when it comes to the budget. But it is definitely going to be presented in September when we have to have the budget going forward. I don't think anybody should doubt that this is something that is going to be pressed on. Well, the uh, current fiscal year runs through September the 30th. Congress hasn't added any funds for that uh, budget uh, budget year specifically for a wall along the Mexican-U.S. border thus far. Trump's proposal for fiscal year 2018, which begins October 1st, the day after this, the one that we hope they're going to pass this week, uh, expires, uh, begins October 1st. It includes $1.5 billion da- uh, a down payment on the wall. The Office of Management and Budget Director Mick Mul- uh, Mulvaney said in March that another $2.8 billion likely would go into a uh, funding the wall in the next fiscal year. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, he had threatened a government shutdown if any funding in the spending bill for the current fiscal year goes toward construction of a border wall. He got his way. On Friday, the House and Senate passed a measure that keeps the government running for another week while it works on the $1 trillion package that they're likely to vote on on Thursday of this week. Well, the House passed the measure by a vote of 382 to 30. The Senate followed with a voice vote. Trump signed the stopgap spending bill later Friday, the White House announced. And the White House previously had dropped uh, the demand for some funds uh, for the wall to be in that final spending bill, which for some makes them less confident that it'll show up in the next spending bill, particularly if they don't take the time uh, to work through this as responsibly as previous Congresses have. Now, it's been so long ago, it's not in recent memory, but it has been done, each of the spending bills being dealt with uh, individually. Our biggest concern uh, at this point in time is to do number one, uh, the number one thing that the American public has put on our shoulders, and we signed up for the job, quite frankly, which is to govern. And that means that the government must remain open. Again, this is the uh, press uh, person speaking for the uh, White House. When asked if the president was willing to risk a government shutdown with Schumer when talks resume in September, uh, she says, uh, we hope that everybody comes together to the table to really work to resolve our nation's problems. That includes border security. The president is committed to the border wall. There will be funding for the border wall, end quote. Well, the report um, uh, will be a, a challenge uh, in this next budget cycle. Pro-life groups are taking a, a swing at congressional Republicans for agreeing to a government spending bill that continues to fund Planned Parenthood. That, of course, is the nation's largest abortion provider. Kristen Hawkins, who's the president of Students for Life of America, called the proposed legislation beyond frustrating, given the electoral gains Republicans made in November running on a pro-life platform. It is inconceivable to many observers that under the circumstances, this could not have been done. Well, this is the result, at least in part, of irresponsibility on the part of the previous Congress, but that's subject for another discussion. The Republican Party, she went on to say, is the only party with an anti-abortion platform and whose candidates ran specifically on the promise to defund Planned Parenthood. Yet here we are watching them pass a bill that funds Planned Parenthood, even though they can't they control the House, the Senate, the White House. Ms. Hawkins said in a statement, again, she is the president of Students for Life of America, which is a dynamic group of young people who are pro-life and uh, in uh, and students in order to avert a looming government shutdown. Capitol Hill negotiators struck a deal on Sunday night on a $1 trillion spending bill that would continue to fund the government through September. A vote on the legislation is expected this week, and as I mentioned, uh, most accounts by Thursday. The spending bill doesn't cut uh, funding for Planned Parenthood, which receives more than $500 million from taxpayers annually. 
I'm a part of that. And if you pay taxes, so are you. President Trump and congressional Republicans campaigned on the promise to defund Planned Parenthood during the general election. Party leaders have said a provision to defund the abortion provider will be included in the Obamacare repeal bill. Well, now we know that's falling apart again, and some 20-plus moderates in the Republican Party have said they do not support the uh, current uh, bill in its current form to repeal uh, Obamacare. Well, even so, um, Marjorie Dannenfelser, who's the president of the Susan B. Anthony list, called the inability to defund Planned Parenthood through the spending bill incredibly disappointing. This makes it imperative that Republicans also move quickly on a reconciliation bill that redirects the abortion giants funds to community health centers. She said in a statement, Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer, he called the spending bill, which doesn't include funding for U.S.-Mexico border wall, a win for Democrats. Early on in this debate, Democrats clearly laid out our principles, he said uh, in a statement. And at the end of the day, this is an agreement that reflects those principles. Well, he's right about that. But the question is, where are the principles of the majority in Congress? Uh, 2015 Robert Morris University Polling Institute surveys shows 53% of Americans support redirecting Planned Parenthood's funding to federally accredited health centers that do not perform abortions but do provide medical services to women. Just 32% I should say oppose such a measure. Every dollar Planned Parenthood receives from taxpayers contributes to their ability to perform abortions, Ms. Hawkins says. More innocent lives will be lost at the hands of Planned Parenthood because of broken promises. And that uh, is an apt description of this spending bill, Broken Promises, which leaves many pro-lifers questioning when, if ever, will Planned Parenthood be defunded? When, if ever, will a pro-life Congress and pro-life administration do anything to move us in the direction of protecting life? Well, after wrapping up his first 100 days in the White House on Saturday, President uh, Trump He plans to hit a new set of issues, including religious liberty, tax reform and school choice, according to a White House official. Now, tax reform might be a bit difficult until Obamacare has been repealed and replaced, but it's on the list for his next 100 days. Uh, Says Helen Aguiar Ferrer, the White House media affairs director, in an interview, we want to have legislation that has a profound impact on religious liberty, one that has profound impact on education, that has profound impact on health care. She went on to say, these are just some of the issues we are working on that's going to be absolutely critical going forward, not putting a timetable on it, although we're talking about the president's next 100 days. But having something relevant and important is much more important than saying that we're going to do it in the first 100 days. It would be nice to say we did it, uh, but it is not necessary. She and the president would prioritize supporting the military and veterans as well as school choice for parents frustrated Uh, with failing public schools. Keep your eyes open for religious liberty, she went on to say. It's going to be an issue. The president made a commitment about the Johnson Amendment, and I think he's going to uh, keep that commitment. The Johnson Amendment, by the way, is named for Senator Lyndon Johnson. He was a senator at the time from Texas, years before the Democrat became uh, president, or for that matter, vice president. It restricts churches from engaging in political expression at the risk of losing their tax-exempt status. Now, Trump said during the campaign and at the National Prayer Breakfast earlier this year that he was committed to doing away with the rule. Legislation exists to do so. However, many conservatives have urged the president to go further in an executive action to protect religious expression. Now, regarding specifics on what action the president would take on religious freedom, uh, his spokesperson only said, stay tuned. Well, this past week, the administration rolled out a tax reform plan to reduce rates and eliminate specific deductions. He also announced discussions with the leaders of Canada and Mexico on renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. 
Um, these uh, are high priorities in the coming months, she said. She also said the White House continues to work on a proposal to repair the nation's highways, bridges, airports and other infrastructure, which uh, President Trump previously has said would be leveraged by private funds. Our infrastructure is in dire need. And as a developed nation and the leader of the free world, we are the most uh, uh, behind when it comes to investment in infrastructure. She went on to say on behalf of the White House, we know that we need at least one trillion dollars to be able to improve our infrastructure and bring up uh, bring it up to speed. And we have a lot of foreign competition in that regard. Well, that ends her her comments. But paying for that, I made uh, reference to the uh, the president's uh, President Obama's effort uh, to address uh, shovel-ready jobs that didn't quite pan out as uh, advertised. Um, it, it raises questions, we're told to stay tuned, raises questions about how, when, and if that will be actually carried out and whether or not it will add to the deficit or there will be some sort of collaboration with the private sector. Um, it'll be an interesting thing to behold. 15 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, I'll let you know about the Trump's agriculture chief tossing out the Um, school lunch rules that were established or at least influenced by Michelle Obama. That's coming up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Hey, KPDQ wants to invite all area pastors to our annual KPDQ Pastors Masters Golf Tournament. That's a mouthful. And if you've never been, 2017 might just be your year. This year's tournament is going to be taking place at the beautiful Langdon Farms Golf Club in Aurora. That's just south of Wilsonville. That's Monday, July the 24th. A full 18 holes of uh, golf will be followed by a delicious lunch. I can vouch for the lunch. Uh, The cost to attend, $20. And for the first 50 pastors to register, they're also going to receive a Pastors Masters ball cap and golf tee. I mean, you got to pick up the phone right now so that you can get that ball cap. They're all gone? What? Oh, Clark is just, they're all gone? Wow. I just got this today and they're already all gone. All right, Ian. Okay, but there are plenty of spaces for golfing available, but you will not wear the fashionable uh, cap because those are all gone. So anyway, uh, cost to attend $20. Go to kpdq.com to register and uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you there. KPDQ always gets a whole of its own. And so we have a chance to see all of the pastors who come through at some point. And that's, I, I love um, watching the pastors have fun with one another, laughing, talking. We get an opportunity to say hello and maybe a word or two of appreciation for their faithfulness. So Um, plan to join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, former First Lady Michelle Obama's dictates on school lunches were thrown out on Monday by one of the president's uh, cabinet members. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue signed a proclamation to begin to undo federal standards that the Obama administration placed on lunches in public schools and uh, return those delicious uh, decisions to local schools. Perdue Uh, said uh, in a prepared set of remarks, this announcement is the result of years of feedback from students, schools, and food service experts about the challenges they're facing in meeting the final regulations for school meals. We've talked about it here before over the last couple of years that kids are throwing their food out. Um, It's been very difficult to meet those standards and several other problems. He went on to say that if kids aren't eating the food and it's ending up in the trash, they aren't getting any nutrition, thus undermining the intent of the program. So those decisions will be made uh, local. The announcement begins the process of restoring local control of guidelines on whole grains, sodium and milk, a press release 
from the Agriculture Department reads, well, the standards implemented in 2012 were crafted with the heavy involvement of Michelle Obama, who made better nutrition and more exercise for children part of her agenda as First Lady. The standards included directives on vastly reducing the use of salt, calorie limits, uh, restrictions on meat, prohibitions on the contents of vending machines, and increased servings of whole grains, fruits, and vegetables, as the New York Post reported. Well, the standards implemented provisions of a law called the Healthy Hunger uh, Free Kids Act of 2010. President uh, Obama's wife also championed the law. Darren Bask, a research fellow in agriculture at the Policy uh, Institute, uh, told the Daily Signal in an email, the 2010 law set calorie limits, stipulated portion sizes, required specific nutrients, and lots of the boys in particular, but some girls as well said it just is not, it's not, they didn't use the word satiating, it didn't satiate their appetite, and they were remained hungry if they ate it at all. Well, the 2010 law set calorie limits. Uh, Michelle is uh, a big opponent and defender, uh, rather proponent and defender of the standards, uh, said the speaker for the Department of Agriculture. Uh, Purdue and former governor of Georgia said that the in a tweet that the rules had been counterproductive. Over 14 million kids decided against school lunch every day, Purdue uh, said, uh, and took an important step to make uh, school lunches edible again. Uh, The Daily Signal uh, wrote the federal school meal standards implemented by the Obama administration have been a disaster, creating massive plate wastes and uh, imposing high costs on schools. The other thing, it wasn't affordable. Uh, Purdue's action, Basque said, is significant for both parents and kids. Well, the issue isn't about nutrition, Basque went on to add. It's about whether one believes the federal government should dictate almost every aspect of what children eat at school or in local communities with the input of parents should make the, uh, these decisions. In fact, kids were um, were banned from eating certain foods that their parents had sent with them into the, the cafeteria. Today was certainly a big win for kids across the country, but it was also a big win for those who respect the opinions of parents more than those of federal bureaucrats. Uh, Patricia Montague, who's a CEO of the School Nutrition Association, a national nonprofit with more than 57,000 members that provide meals to students across the nation, praised Purdue's leadership as well. I commend Secretary Purdue for taking this important step. Uh, We have been wanting flexibility so that schools can serve meals that are both nutritious and palatable. Apparently it was one without the other. We don't want kids wasting their meals by throwing them away. Some of our schools are actually using that food waste as compost that shouldn't be happening. And apparently it was in some abundance. So the school rules have now been passed back uh, to the school districts and uh, to the states and parents for that matter. Well, the controversy over Palestinian Authority uh, payments uh, to convicted terrorists and their families is expected to be one of the top priorities when President Trump meets with the Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas at the White House tomorrow. Uh, Stopping the payment of terrorist families is a priority for this administration and this president and a necessary foundation for real peace. That's a quote from a senior administration official. We expect the president will make this point in the meeting. The role of the payments, which has gained prominence in recent days, has outraged lawmakers who appointed to the case of an American terrorist victim, Taylor Force, as a prime example of what the charge Uh, What they charge is Palestinian Authority support for terror attacks against civilians. They claim some of the funds doled out by the P.A., uh, come from American taxpayers. Force was uh, a West Point graduate who served in Afghanistan and Iraq, was pursuing an MBA from Vanderbilt last year uh, uh, until, as uh, her mother, uh, Robbie, recalled, 
Um, Taylor was stabbed to death while uh, he was uh, in Israel by a Palestinian. Well, Taylor, who was 28, was walking along the Mediterranean boardwalk promenade with friends in Tel Aviv when he was savagely knifed to death in March of 2016. His killer was identified as a Palestinian terrorist, 22-year-old, who authorities say went on to on a stabbing spree um, that also severely wounded 10 others before he was shot dead by Israeli police. Um, all dads and all moms are proud of their kids. Taylor basically did everything right, but he was humble about it, his father said. His parents say their grief was uh, compounded by the fact that the family of their son's murderer is making money on his death. The Palestinian Authority spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year paying jihadists and their survivors who are involved in acts of terrorism. In fact, it may be a way for families to um, encourage their young people to take advantage of the benefits of martyrdom while um, cashing in following. It rewards attacks, said former Ambassador Dennis Ross, who spent decades trying to forge Middle Eastern peace as a top official in three administrations. It offers a payoff for that. In other words, it elevates it and makes it something to be admired. A congressional bill named for Taylor, the Taylor Force Act, would cut off U.S. aid unless the Palestinian Authority stops the payments. Ross spoke to reporters at a brief uh, a briefing held by the Washington, D.C.-based The Israeli Project, uh, which focuses on Middle Eastern issues. Ross urged the president to support the Taylor Force Act and to tell Abbas directly that the payments need to end. If the president would approach it in terms of saying, look, I understand it is not easy for you to do, but I'm looking for, e- uh, for each side to take hard steps as proof that they are really ready to move forward toward finalizing and ending this conflict. I'm prepared to stay invested if you are prepared to take a hard step. Lee said Trump should also tell Abbas um, what we can't talk about uh, is you not doing it, that that should be a, uh, an end to the conversation, any negotiation and certainly any funding that might follow. South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham, the leading sponsor of the Senate legislation, asked at a news conference last week, can you imagine growing up in a country where your government will pay you for killing someone else? Through a terrorist act. Well, if you die as a terrorist, as a martyr, your family will get an annual stipend greater than the average Palestinian can earn. In this case, the terrorist who killed Taylor Force was hailed as a hero, was basically given a state funeral, and his family was given money by the state. Not a one-time lump sum, but over a period of time, they receive a stipend from the government that exceeds the minimum of what uh, they could earn on their own. Well, the House bill is sponsored by Colorado Republican Representative Doug uh, Lamborn and New York uh, Republican Representative Lee Zeldin. Uh, Taylor Force is an American hero. It's about letting the Force family know uh, where we stand with him, that uh, they stand uh, with their son. The United States Congress and the president will do the right thing. Well, we'll see what actually happens when President Trump meets with uh, Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, and that will be tomorrow in the White House. And again, he is the uh, leader of the Palestinian Authority. 30 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I mentioned uh, that uh, the president is going to be meeting with the uh, Palestinian um, Authority uh, president, leader. I'm not even sure what the, the title is, Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, he's also made some entrees uh, to the a leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. Uh, and I appreciated that the Patriot Post uh, wrote a little uh, something to interpret what the president uh, means and what context his statements are to be understood, because a lot of 
People are scratching their heads, but they write that in an interview on Monday with Bloomberg News, Donald Trump said something that left many shaking their heads in disbelief or rolling their eyes over yet another instance of his verbal incontinence. Shocking, we know, Trump mused. If it would be appropriate for me to meet with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, I would absolutely. I would be honored to do it, end quote. He continued, if it's uh, under uh, the right circumstances, but I would do that, again, end quote. When it comes to ad-lib remarks and interviews, much like his um, unrefined use of Twitter, which thankfully is now subject to some moderation, Trump still is prone to forget that every word he says will be trumpeted around the world. At issue specifically was Trump's use of the word honored in his reference to North Korea's ruthless dictator. Once again, many pounced on Trump's words as further evidence of his supposed admiration of strongmen. Coming on the heels of his promise to invite murderous Philippine dictator Rodrigo Duarte and Turkey's budding tyrant um, Erdogan to the White House, this is understandable. But that's also an overly simplistic assessment that misses the purpose behind Mr. Trump's statement. Listen for what he means, not for what he says. Now, one would like to think that you could both hear what is said and know what it means, and they would both be the same. But they go on in in defense of the president. Clearly, Trump is aiming to diffuse an increasingly tense situation. His offer of a conditional olive branch toward Kim and uh, make no mistake, any meeting is absolutely conditional on North Korea's behavior, coupled with his uh, uh, flattening reference to Kim as a smart cookie are designed to lay groundwork for a potential diplomatic solution. And while Trump's words may have little impact on Trump, or on Kim rather, it plays well with China, the most important player in helping the U.S. clamp down on the despot John McCain, more accurately labeled the crazy fat kid. That's a quote, by the way. Showing honor especially to those in positions of authority is a great importance uh, to the cultures of the Far East. Trump's statements play to the Eastern ear as a serious and respectful expression for seeking a diplomatic solution. And while Westerners justifiably hear Trump's words as foolish, the desired aim to de-escalate the growing conflict is not so careless. It also, rather, it's also important to note that Trump's statements uh, were made at the same time as the U.S. military announced that the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense, or THAAD, missile shield in South Korea is now operational. That is no coincidence. Finally, in the highly unlikely event that Kim, uh, the Kim regime actually capitulates the U.S. and the rest of the world's demands of nuclear disarmament, a bilateral meeting between the U.S. and North Korea would be a significant change in longstanding U.S. policy that may end up being far more consequential than Trump's verg- verbal blunder. Well, capitulation is something the United States has done repeatedly over the last several decades. Uh, Whether or not uh, you could gain something useful or meaningful from the North as a result uh, remains to be seen. But that's at least an interpretation of what the president meant, the context and the timing and why they believe it's it was an important statement made at the right time, less for North Korea as for China. You can do with it what you will. Well, Florida Republican Representative Eliana Ross Lightman uh, is retiring from Congress. Uh, she has been a House member since 1989, will not seek reelection next year. She's a former chairwoman of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. The Congresswoman explained her decision in an interview with the Miami Herald on Sunday. She called it a personal decision based on personal considerations. The most uh, difficult, I don't know why we insist on an explanation Uh, As if uh, serving in Congress is a dream job, I suppose, if she represents her constituents well, they would like to know why you uh, have opted not to continue. But nonetheless, the most difficult challenge is not to simply keep winning elections, she says, but rather the more difficult challenge is to not let the ability to win define my seasons. 
Well, she her congressional district will be a battleground in 2018. Democrat Hillary Clinton won it over Donald Trump by 20 percentage points. And she was able to win by 10 percentage points. So it's sort of an interesting combination there. Again, a battleground state in the next election, midterm coming up. She said she's confident that she would be reelected if she chose to run again. I will not allow my season in elected office uh, be extended beyond my personal view of its season simply because I have a continuing ability to win. We all know or should know that winning isn't everything. My seasons are defined instead By seeking out new challenges, being there as our grandchildren grow up, interacting with and influencing public issues in new and exciting ways, she said. She's considered a moderate Republican who has not supported House Republican leadership's recent Obamacare overhaul plans and is not a strong supporter of President Trump. She was born in Havana. She's uh, well known for being a fierce critic of the Cuban politics. The late Fidel Castro nicknamed her um, the big bad she-wolf. For years, she represented the Florida Keys, including gay-friendly Key West, advocated for LBGTQ uh, rights. Uh, eventually, her transgender son made his way into the public spotlight. Last year, he and his uh, parents recorded a bilingual public service TV campaign to urge Hispanics to support transgender youth. In her remaining 20 months in Congress, uh, she said she will keep pushing for one of her long-running goals for a uh, Uh, for Germany to offer restitution to Holocaust victims. And I will continue to stand up. I'm sure her constituents are thrilled about that as she represents a certain body of people here. And I will continue to stand up to tyrants and dictators all over the world. She told the Miami Herald, I take that as a badge of honor uh, when they blast me and don't let me um, uh, in their countries. Uh, News of her retirement swept through Florida political circles. And, of course, lots of people are licking their lips at the prospect of running for her seat. Not only is uh, Ross Lightning a tireless advocate for freedom and human rights, she is my friend. Florida will miss her. Uh, Marco Rubio said Rick Scott wrote this. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee used her announcement to criticize her party. It's been uh, clear for years that the Republican Party was out of step with the values of Miami families. And she, her retirement announcement is a testament to the fact that she recognizes how wide that gap had grown. Another wrote um, that she is simply a force of nature. One Ohio GOP representative, uh, chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee, which helps get party members elected and reelected to the House. She represented her South Florida district well, and she will be dearly missed in Washington. I wish her and her family well. So that will be a, a, a battleground seat in the midterm elections, and I suppose beyond, depending on the outcome of that midterm election, for which she will not seek uh, re-election. Well, it turns out one-third of the steering committee organiz- uh, organizations have one thing in common for the People's Climate March uh, that took place. Uh, donations from George Soros, the liberal billionaire, gave them about $36 million combined. So far, the broadcast networks haven't made the connection or shown much interest. Between 2000 and 2014, he gave 36,018, um, let's see, $36,018,461 uh, to 18 of the 55 <clears throat> steering committee members of the People's Climate March. Donations to six uh, of those groups were more than a million dollars each. The Center for Community Change, the NAACP, the Natural Resources Defense Council, People's Action, Public Citizens, and Union of Concerned Scientists. Only three of these six organizations um, actually have anything climate-related in their individual missions. Well, the presence of many non-climate-related organizations leading the march indicated that this climate march, just like the March for Science and the Women's March, is not about a single issue 
but about attacking the new administration and a a list of issues. Adam Smith uh, Institute fellow Tim Warstall analyzed the uh, March for Science on the 22nd and concluded that uh, its complaints were not about science, but rather about political and economic policy. No big surprise there as the two are intertwined and uh, will not very likely be uh, loosed anytime soon. Meanwhile, immigrant advocates, labor activists join thousands of others here in Portland and across the country to demonstrate uh, Monday to protest the president's pledged crackdown on illegal immigration and other issues. There were strikes, marches, rallies held from coast to coast. Demonstrators in Chicago chanted to, for Mr. Trump to leave office. Teachers picketed outside schools in Philadelphia. Protesters in Los Angeles waved signs reading love, not hate which I would hope they would turn inward. The D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, more than 200 businesses closed on Monday. Many immigrants skipped work, schools, and shopping for the day to underscore the contribution to the U.S. economy they make. Demonstrations on May Day celebrated as International Workers' Day featured similar activities with protesters from the Philippines to Paris demanding better working conditions. But the focus in the U.S. was, of course, on Mr. Trump and his policies. Organizers of the movement called Rise Up led similar demonstrations in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Dozens more were planned in smaller cities, Little Rock, Arkansas, Erie, Pennsylvania. And, of course, Portland had to demonstrate uh, its um, chops in uh, things devolving into a violent confrontation with police. The rally became a full-scale riot. Anarchists destroyed a police car, attacked officers, smashed numerous windows and property, started fires in the streets. People told people to leave the area, and at least three people were arrested. I think that number went up to 25 before it was all said and done. On Friday, Mr. Trump issued a statement declaring May 1st Loyalty Day to recognize and affirm our allegiance to the principles upon which America was built. The Rise Up movement is the second major nationwide immigrant uh, strike since Mr. Trump's inauguration, and the clash will continue, I expect, at least for the remainder of the Trump tenure and depending on the outcome of the next election, beyond. A former South Carolina police officer accused of fatally shooting an unarmed black man pleaded guilty Tuesday to violating the civil rights of the man he killed in 2015 in a move that could bring jail time. Michael Slager made his plea in Charleston in a case of the traffic stop and deadly shooting of Walter Scott. The video showed Scott was running away as the officer opened fire. Um, His attorney Andrew Savage said that we hope that uh, Michael's acceptance of responsibility will help the Scott family as they continue to grieve their loss. Slager was slated to appear in federal court for motions prior to his planned federal trial in the death of Scott. Cell phone video of the incident has since been viewed by millions. Uh, Jury selection was scheduled for next week ahead of the May 15th trial date. Slager's first trial on uh, state murder charges ended in a hung jury. This is now proceedings before the federal court to which he has now pled guilty to violating Walter Scott's civil rights. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I've heard this story before, but I wanted to share the latest iteration of it. An Arizona woman had purchased an item, a purse, in fact. She bought it at Walmart. No big deal. Nothing to see here, but... Uh, This woman from Arizona said she made a stunning discovery inside the new purse she bought at a Walmart, a note apparently written by a desperate prisoner in China. That's the People's Republic of China. This was a prisoner there. Laura Wallace found the message written in Chinese tucked inside the zipper compartment of the purse she purchased at a Sierra Vista Walmart, according to the local media. 
She had a Chinese-speaking person translate the note to English, and the letter read, and I quote, Inmates in the Yingshan prison in Guangxi, China, are working 14-hour days with no break, rest at noon, continue working overtime until 12 midnight, and whoever doesn't finish his work will be beaten. Their meals are without oil and salt. Um, every month, the boss pays the inmate 2,000 yuan. I don't know what that means in terms of U.S. dollars, so I don't have a context for that. But uh, the inmate uh, apparently is paid 2,000 yuan. Um, any additional dishes will be uh, finished by the police. Uh, if an inmate uh, is sick and needs medicine, the cost will be deducted from the salary. Prison in China is unlike prison in America. Horse, cow, goat, pig, dog. And apparently, literally, that means inhumane treatment, end quote. Well, two other people translated the note to make sure the message was accurate, according to the uh, uh, Laura Wallace, who purchased the purse. I'm very sure that that's exactly what the note said, she said to her local media. She said she wanted to share the note to bring awareness to the situation. I don't want this to be an attack on any store, she said. That's not the answer. This is happening all at all kinds of places, and people just probably don't know. Walmart issued a statement to the local media on the incident. We can't comment specifically on this note because we have no way of verifying the origin of the letter. But one of our requirements for the suppliers who supply products for sale at Walmart is that uh, all work should be voluntary, as indicated in our standards for suppliers. Similar notes reportedly have turned up in items sold at stores such as Saks Fifth Avenue, Kmart in the past. All things assembled, built, prepared, packaged in China. I've been aware for quite some time that many who are imprisoned there, the slave labor is used to uh, produce many of the consumer goods that we enjoy. I know a good number of them are imprisoned because of their Christian faith. And it struck me that it's a very sobering thing to consider that when I, and I'm not quite sure what to do about it. I have a friend who has made the decision their family is not going to buy anything made in China uh, and I admire that. The challenge is figuring out what's made in China and what's isn't, what isn't. There are a lot of things that have the label on it um, that says made in China. There are a lot of things where the tags uh, reflect the the uh, vendor here and not where the item was made. It's, it's a painful and sobering thing to think about people who are uh, in forced labor producing the stuff that matters little to us. I mean, she bought a purse. She probably has five purses. It doesn't really matter. But what it takes for that purse to get here um, is a, a painful thing to consider. It's also difficult for a retailer like Walmart and Saks Fifth Avenue and Kmart. They make it clear that we do not want items that are uh, assembled or um, packaged using slave labor. But how can they confirm that? Uh, anyway, it just reminded me of the uh, the persecuted church in China. There's kind of a a, a dual system going on there. Some of the minorities are given greater religious freedom uh, than others. Uh, in some places, if you're part of the three self church, which is the state church, you're free to uh, worship in, in uh, under the purview of the government In other places, the underground church where they want to have the freedom uh, to do everything that the gospel uh, demands. Um, so there's a lot going on in China. It's not one thing or the other, but there are people that I know um, are part of this slave labor force who are imprisoned because of their faith in Christ. There are also Uyghurs and people for other reasons, political and other reasons, who are imprisoned and not for crimes that you and I would think of as as meriting uh, imprisonment. 
Um, but I would just remind us that there is a segment of the family. They are of no less value to God, but we have a connection with them because we're all members of the body of Christ. So we have a familial connection through Christ that we need to remember and pray for the persecuted church and others who are the uh, the subject of injustice and uh, pray for justice and mercy and liberation for those who, um, like the writer of this note that has been authenticated, certainly the translation of it, but can't be pinpointed uh, to any specific location, any specific individual, uh, except that um, they're in a prison in Guangxi, China, um, working 14 hours uh, with no break. Uh, They rest at noon and then continue to work uh, until 12 midnight. They get about 2,000 yuan. Uh, Again, I don't don't know what that means in terms of the economy there or in in terms of U.S. dollars. They get that once a month. Uh, But if they're ill or require additional care, then that is deducted from their, in quotes, salary. And they make the point that prison in China is unlike prison in America. There are certain standards that have to be met. If someone who brutally murdered dozens of people is uh, to be put to death, we make sure that it's done in the most humane possible way. And these days, we rarely um, see anyone executed regardless of the nature of their crime. Uh, So it's a very different system there. And again, the note ended, horse, cow, goat, pig, dog. And that literally, apparently in Mandarin means inhumane treatment. We are blessed. And let's uh, spend some of our time remembering those who are not. Uh, Tomorrow on the program, um, we're going to talk with Pat Williams, the author of The Success Intersection, What Happens When Your Talent Meets Your Passion. Doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does. We'll talk with uh, Pat Williams about that on Wednesday. Then on Thursday, we'll talk with Robert O'Neill. The Operator is the title of the book, Firing the Shot That Killed Bin Laden. And by the way, uh, that took place six years ago today. Uh, The subtitle, And My Years as a a SEAL Team Warrior. Uh, He'll be with us on Thursday. Thursday is also the National Day of Prayer, and we'll spend our second hour of the program focusing uh, on that fact. And I hope uh, you are already preparing to set aside some time to pray for our nation. It's we ought to always be praying, but when the nation sets aside a, a, a time when people corporately agree to pray for our nation, it doesn't mean you pray for a specific politician that you support or dislike and uh, you pray in a certain way that reflects your political um, uh, preferences. We are to pray for those who are in authority, regardless of our political preferences, that ultimately God's will would be carried out, that his wisdom would govern the decisions that are being made. So we're going to spend some time talking on the National Day of Prayer about the National Day of Prayer. And that is always the first Thursday in May, this time around. That's uh, two days from now. So we'll spend some time on that. And then on Friday, we'll uh, lighten up and enjoy the lighter side of the news. So look forward uh, to that. I also want to remind you that before we sign off today that in November, in fact, it's the 1st through the 10th of November, Experience Israel. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to uh, to travel to the Holy Land with Genesis Tours and teaching pastor Sean Thornton. Uh, there will be 10 exciting days. You will tour Israel, experience the wonder of the Bible coming to life. You can go to kpdq.com and enter the keyword Israel for all the details and registration. 
Uh, Don't miss the opportunity if you've always wanted to go to Israel to travel through Israel during Jerusalem's 50th anniversary celebrations. Again, you can find out more at kpdq.com, keyword Israel. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.